Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are... We are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ had not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And we'll continue reading from verse 50 to 58. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will, we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality." When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Well, as we get towards uh, the end of this series that we've been working through this term in 1 Corinthians, we come to this uh, really well-known chapter, a really big chapter, and in some ways we're just going to sort of be skating over the surface uh, tonight because there's so much ground to cover. So no doubt there will be questions that uh, come out of this passage that um, won't get answered for you. Let me encourage you to send uh, questions into the office that can be addressed in the podcast on Wednesday. I'd love to um, help out um, anything that comes through from that tonight. But let me pray for us, ask that God will enable us to really think deeply and well together about this really crucial chapter. Let's pray. 
Now, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us. We thank you that in Christ we have one who brings hope. And we pray that as we consider this important theme of the resurrection tonight, we'll see uh, the sure and certain hope that is offered uh, through Christ's victory. Help us as we reflect on your word together that you might uh, challenge us afresh, that you might encourage us where needed, be at work in us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, our pop culture today loves to express a longing for life to continue beyond death, as seen in the many resurrection themes in movies. In The Matrix, you may remember that uh, near the end of the first film, uh, Neo is shot dead by Agent Smith. Sorry if I've just given that away. And to everyone's amazement, including his own, uh, Neo is risen from the dead, confirming what people thought about his special status. And Neo's resurrection was triggered by a kiss from Trinity. And then in Matrix Reloaded, Neo exhibits the power to resurrect Trinity from the dead after she is fatally wounded. And then there's the example in the final Harry Potter novel, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. In an epic climax, Harry comes to understand that he must die in order to defeat the evil Voldemort. And so he doesn't raise his wand to defend himself, and so he perishes, but shortly after is resurrected, and so then Harry triumphs over his nemesis. You'll see it in lots of films and in lots of literature as well. But there's this parallel thing happening also in our society over the last 30 years, at least in the Western world. Despite this longing, um, there's also the rise of the so-called new atheism in the last few decades with the likes of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens leading to the promotion of various doubts about the resurrection of Jesus, if not outright dismissal of such a belief. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, who passed away in 2011, uh, tweeted one day about the resurrection, having no reliable or consistent witnesses in anything like the period needed to certify such an extraordinary claim, we can finally be entitled to say that we have a right, if not an obligation, to respect ourselves enough to disbelieve this whole thing. Uh, Dawkins was more derisive in his usual way, and he stated at one point, what happened to Jesus was what happens to us all when we die. We decompose. Accounts of Jesus' resurrection and ascension are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. Now, we'll come back to how we might answer such claims, but it seems that as we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Corinthian Christians themselves in the first century were expressing doubts about the resurrection so much so that the Apostle Paul feels like he has to defend this doctrine and address their concerns. So after writing in chapters 11 to 14 all about uh, right worship and the gathering of the church, as we've seen over the last few weeks, he now turns to defending the resurrection. And notice how it's the questioning from the church that have prompted this defense here. Notice from verses 12 to 15 which highlights how Paul comes to be writing about this. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless 
and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. It seems that at least some of the Corinthian Christians were either unconvinced with the resurrection of Jesus or at least were unsure that believers themselves would be raised to new life, even if Jesus had been. But as Paul points out, the two go together very strongly. If we don't believe that Jesus has been raised, then of course we won't believe that his followers will be either. If the resurrection of Jesus is not true, he says, our faith is futile. Now it makes sense because just as the heart pumps life-giving blood to every part of our body, so the truth of the resurrection is key to all other facets of the gospel. The resurrection is the pivot or the hinge on which Christianity stands or falls, and without which none of the other truths would matter very much. Without the resurrection, Christianity would simply be wishful thinking. It would just fall into the same category as every other philosophy or man-made religion of this world. And perhaps most memorably in the chapter, Paul states in verse 32 that if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, of course, that's the attitude of much of our society today for that very reason. There's a logic to that, isn't there? If there's nothing beyond this life, then why not just do whatever I want for the 70 or 80 years I'm blessed with because there's nothing beyond it. But for believers, the resurrection is absolutely crucial. It's the proof of Jesus' lordship. It's the guarantee of the power of his death to actually save us. It's the certainty that death has been defeated and that we do have a hope beyond the grave. All of these things are completely dependent upon Jesus' resurrection. And with so much at stake, then how can we be sure? It's an important question, isn't it? That's our big question tonight that we're going to consider. How can we be certain of Christ's resurrection but also ours? How can we be certain of Christ's resurrection and ours? Well, the first answer to that is this. We need to look at the evidence. We have to look at the evidence. Consider the evidence for Christ's resurrection which Paul assembles in the first 11 verses of the chapter. Particularly, have a look at verses 1 to 4 with me again. Now, brothers and sisters, he writes, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, there's a few testimonies, if you like, or evidence for the resurrection that Paul is outlining here. Now, the first testimony is that of the church's reception of the gospel in verses 1 and 2. Notice there, it's not stated explicitly, but it's implied that the very fact that the Corinthian Christians themselves had received the gospel and had been so radically changed by it that clearly there is power in the gospel and in the resurrection that is part of that. This itself is evidence of God's work amongst them and their acceptance of the resurrection of Jesus. And though it's a largely subjective proof, now, the endurance of the Christian church for the last 2,000 years is evidence of Christ's resurrection reality. 
Because as we've already seen, critics have denounced the resurrection as a hoax, as a fabrication, but they've never been able to explain the power of such a supposed fabrication to so radically change the lives of men and women that they will give up everything, including their lives, to follow this Lord Jesus. But secondly, there's the testimony of Scripture notice in verses 3 and 4. And the Scriptures here refer to the Old Testament. That was what was available in the first century as Paul was writing this early letter, actually, of the New Testament. And Jesus himself, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, they all quoted from Old Testament passages that pointed forward to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So passages like Genesis 22 or Psalm 16 or Psalm 22 or Hosea chapter 6 and really importantly, Isaiah 53. See, over and over again, either directly or indirectly, the Old Testament foretells the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And verses 3 to 4 here are thought to be probably the earliest summary of the gospel in the New Testament. This was one of the earliest letters. And what we have in verses 3 and 4 is something they think was probably a creed that was read out in churches in the first century. It's just a beautiful summary of the gospel based on God's word and what had already been revealed in Scripture. But thirdly, there's also the testimony of eyewitnesses. From verses 5 to 8, we get a number of them. One of the requirements, of course, of an apostle was that they had to have seen the resurrected Christ. We get that told to us in Acts 1 as they have to choose a replacement for Judas. And we see there in the list that is given by Paul that Jesus firstly appeared to the apostle Peter. Remember that happened after he had met the women at the tomb. The women are actually the first. Peter then is the first of the 12 to see the risen Christ. And then that night, the first Sunday evening, when all the disciples are assembled upstairs in fear in the upper room, um, Jesus appears to them as well. We're also told here by Paul, Jesus later appeared to 500 people at one time. Now, we don't know anything about that event other than what Paul says right here. Um, and so it's a bit of a teaser in that sense, but we do know from what Paul says here that even at the time of him writing this letter, which is about two decades after Jesus' resurrection, most of that 500 people are still alive. He's saying you could go to them, they're eyewitnesses, and they could tell you about the risen Christ. And then Jesus appeared to James, his brother, and then to all the apostles, which was probably at the ascension in Acts chapter 1. And so... We have all of these eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. And then lastly, in verses 8 to 10, we've got the Apostle Paul himself. And he's unique because, as you know, he was somebody who was not a believer for a long time. In fact, he was persecuting the church. He was throwing all the Christians in prison and seeing some of them killed. And so the appearance of Jesus to him is not only post-resurrection, it's post-ascension. It's a couple of years down the track that Jesus appears to Paul on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9 and sees that amazing conversion in his life where he then becomes the great evangelist of the gospel that he hated previously. And then finally he says in verse 11, there's the testimony of the common message that people keep saying the same thing. Notice he says, whether then it was I or they, they being Peter or the 12 or James or anyone else, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. See, without exception, every time the gospel was explained or preached anywhere, they were preaching about the pivotal nature of Christ's death, but also his resurrection. 
It's absolutely key. Whenever Christ was preached, this was part of the message. And so the death and resurrection of Jesus, they're dateable events. They have a multiplicity of witnesses. It's documented both inside the New Testament and outside of it. And it's been taught consistently in the life of the church for 2,000 years. And it's this very point that convinced one of the strongest atheist writers of the 20th century, Anthony Flew, to give up his atheism. He was the professor of philosophy at the University of Reading in Britain. And in 2007, after spending decades of writing against Christian belief, to the shock of many people, he published a book entitled There Is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. At the end of the book, even, he has an appendix that's included where he gets the Christian uh, writer and uh, historian N.T. Wright to do a whole explanation of the proof of the resurrection of Jesus as the cornerstone for what you have to believe. Anthony Flew argued that Jesus is different to every other religious figure because his life is verifiable. It's so important. The evidence is before us, Paul says. Well, let me give you a second answer to this question. How can we be sure that not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but that we will be raised? Well, have a look at verses 42 to 44 with me. Here Paul writes, So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. See, in asserting a physical resurrection, the Bible is actually unique. It's saying to us that a human being is not merely his or her soul. The dust of the ground and the breath of life were both brought together to create Adam in Genesis 2 verse 7. And so when Christ died for us, it was for our bodies as well as our souls. God is to be glorified in our bodies now, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us. And when Christ returns, our resurrection bodies as well as our souls will be with him in the new creation. We won't just be disembodied spirits. And we can be sure of that, Scripture says over and over again, because we will be made like Christ. Christ himself, who was raised from the dead and who said to his disciples as he stood in the upper room, touch me and see. See, as Paul says earlier in verse 23, our bodies will be raised like Christ. Paul writes there, but each in his own turn, Christ, the first fruits, fruits and then when he comes, those who belong to him. And that will happen simultaneously for all believers. That's what Paul goes on to say in verses 51 and 52. And the moment Jesus returns, this will be true of all those who have placed their trust in Christ. But what will our risen bodies be like? You know, I think we struggle with um, believing this at times or trying to picture what it will be because it just is outside of our realm of understanding. We struggle to think about this well. What will we be like? Well, our bodies will be in one sense the same. They'll be recognizable human form, but also they will be clearly different. Paul wants to say both is true as he unpacks this chapter. He says there's both continuity and discontinuity. 
Paul's analogy, of course, in verses 25 to 41, is all about sowing seed. It's an agricultural analogy, right? He says where there's an essential identity and yet there's also total transformation. So he says, well, if you sow seed of wheat, then wheat will be produced. There's the similarity. But the reason for sowing is that a new plant is formed. The seed will die in the ground, but new life will be given to a new plant. Here's the difference that is produced as we have resurrection bodies. So let's unpack this a little bit more from these few verses in 42 to 44, because in those verses, Paul's wanting to say there's four differences here um, of our bodies now versus our resurrection bodies. Firstly, notice he says an earthly body is perishable, or more literally in the Greek, it's sown in corruption, while our resurrection body will be raised to incorruption. Now, we all know too well um, that irreversible decay is weakening our earthly bodies. Science tells us that after the age of 18, it's all downhill, really. I'm, I'm sorry about that. If you're younger, good luck to you. It's all a process of deterioration for the rest of us. It continues remorse, remorselessly, moment by moment. And, of course, we protest against that. Uh, we cling to our vanishing youthfulness, but the fact is that our bodies will grow weaker and weaker and eventually collapse and die. But Paul's wanting to say here in this chapter, and it's great hope to us, that our bodies will not experience that deterioration in heaven. Secondly, our bodies are sown in dishonor at the point of death, but they will be raised in glory, Paul says. Now, although when we attend funeral services, um, we pay due respect to the person who has passed away, and rightly so, the fact remains that death has robbed that person of all dignity at that point if we're real about the situation. At a burial, we commit a lifeless body to the dust of the earth. But through faith in Christ, Paul says, those who will be raised from the dead... Uh, will be like Jesus. They will dwell in glory. They will share in his glory. And so we have this wonderful rejuvenation picture of what is ahead. Dishonor to glory. Thirdly, he says, our current bodies are sown in weakness at death. Don't we know it? But they will be raised in power. You know, when death separates a soul from the physical body, the body remains uh, completely powerless. The corpse is just a shell. But when our body comes back to life in glory and is reunited with our soul, it demonstrates God's power, his unimaginably great power. And then lastly, Paul says, our, the sowing at death is of a physical or a natural body, but it will be raised a spiritual body. Now, spiritual here doesn't mean non-physical, but rather a body indwelt or animated and directed by the Spirit. Well, how do we think about all of that? I think as we apply this second point regarding the certainty of our own resurrection, uh, we need to be reminded that the, while the Bible does instruct us on a few points as we've just considered, there are lots of unanswered questions, right, about how all that works. There are still things that we don't know. The 20th century American preacher and author, uh, Vance Havner, who was quite famous for his funny turns of phrase and stories, um, spoke about how we should think in this space. He said there are a lot of questions the Bible doesn't answer about the hereafter, 
but I think one of them is illustrated by the story of the boy that's sitting at his table eating his spinach with a chocolate cake and ice cream at the end of the table. He's going to have a hard time eating that spinach while what is in front of him is the very thing that he longs for. And we are the same. We're going to struggle if we knew all that was ahead for us to focus on what we're doing now. It'd be hard for us to eat our spinach down here. You see, the full dimensions of our heavenly existence haven't been revealed to us. But really, if they had been, we would not be able to understand them fully at this point anyway. We can't comprehend all that is to come. It's enough to know that we will bear the likeness of the man from heaven, that we will be like Jesus. We will see him face to face. We will have glorified, imperishable resurrection bodies. Which brings me to a third and final answer to this question. How can we be sure about Christ's resurrection and ours? Well, it's ultimately about Christ's victory over sin and death, which is ours too, because he's won it for us. Christ's victory over sin and death is ours too. Notice again what um, the Apostle Paul writes in verses 50 to 52. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Well, there's a few final points that Paul makes here in this uh, great finishing conclusion. His main point is that death is not the end, it's merely a change room. Notice Paul's argument here, it's quite simple. We can't enter God's presence in our mortal bodies, so we'll have to be changed so that we're fit to enter. At Christ's return, both those Christians who have already died and those who are still alive will be given transformed immortal bodies. And this change will happen instantaneously, as I mentioned earlier. And so to speak about this change, he talks about in terms of the metaphor of clothing. He pictures death as a change room, if you like, or even a wardrobe. In The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis pictures the entrance to Narnia as a wardrobe through which a person passed. They went from one world to the next in a moment, in a step. And Paul's picture here of death is not dissimilar. He views the resurrection as an instantaneous change from this world to the next, to the immortality of the new creation. And all of that can happen because of verses 54 to 57, where Paul wants to say Jesus has defeated sin and therefore has overcome death on our behalf because the wages of sin is death. Instead of death swallowing up life, which we're so used to observing in our fallen world, this time, death will be overcome. And this is monumental news, so much so that Paul can even taunt death with the words of the prophet Hosea. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And those words have been taken up in some famous passages in books, most importantly, perhaps, in The Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's famous work, where he speaks about death as a river through which Christians pass to the celestial city or heaven. And he records one of his characters using these words, Mr. Valiant for Truth. He describes his death in this way. 
When the day had come that he must go, many accompanied him to the riverside, into which as he went, he said, Where, O death, is your victory? And as he went down deeper still, Where, O death, is your sting? And so he passed over to the other side, and the trumpet sounded for him. It's a great picture that takes up the words of 1 Corinthians 15 and pictures us in that scene as we think about our own mortality and what is to come. You see, really what Paul is saying in this last section, I think, is that death is like a schoolyard bully before whom all the children cower until somebody stronger comes along and defeats the bully and gives freedom to everyone, hope at last. You see, at the last day, death will be finally vanquished and therefore we have a great hope because of the Lord Jesus through his resurrection. It's why when you get to the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, we get that famous verse, verse 4, that we know well, that speaks about the end of death. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death. Just think about that. The future is assured for somebody who has placed their lot with the Lord Jesus, the one who has conquered death on our behalf. We know that there's a life after death, a resurrection that awaits if we have repented and turned in faith to the one who is in control of all things. But does that help us in the present? What a purpose of living for Jesus now? Well, Paul even captures that in the final verse, in verse 58. Did you notice that? Paul encourages us not only to be steadfast in our faith, but to give ourselves fully to working for the Lord. Encourages us because our work for the Lord is not in vain, Paul says. Our work done in his name will never be wasted because it's done with a view to his eternal kingdom to come. And see, if our confident hope in the resurrection starts to waver, what will happen in a person's life? Well, they'll abandon themselves to just pursuing the things of this world. As I said at the start, it makes sense. If there is nothing beyond this life, then why am I living for Jesus? But if I'm sure that there is something beyond the 70 or 80 years that God might bless me with, then that changes the present completely. My perspective is now to live for him assured of what is to come when I'll be with him finally, eternally. There's great motivation to be working for the Lord in the present. I hope as you've seen, as we've considered tonight, that we can be certain of Christ's resurrection and we can even be certain of our future, our own resurrection because of him, not because of anything that we've done, but because of the finished work of our Saviour. I pray that each of us will have that certain conviction, that certain conviction of our own resurrection because of the one that we trust in, the one who has conquered all, let me pray for us to that end. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you that through the Apostle Paul's words that you have inspired, we see the sure and certain hope that is before those who place their lives in the hands of the Lord Jesus who came to die, to lay down his life for us, but then to take it back up again, as John writes. Lord, we thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus, and all that that achieves for us, the certain hope that it provides us in this fallen world as we await that great day, the return of our Saviour. Lord, help us to continue to steadfastly 
hold firm to our faith, not only in Christ's death, but in his resurrection, and to serve him while we wait. For we pray this in his name. Amen.